Well, good morning to you again. If you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 11, um, after worshiping together, it's always a, it's always a joy. And uh, to the whole team, uh, all of you, just want to say thank you for leading us this morning in worship. And uh, Brian Nelson, that's not something that he does very often up here, but uh, great job. Thank you. Uh, for your sacrifice there for us this week. Um, if if uh, you don't have one with you, uh, that is a Bible. There should be one in a chair in front of you. I would love for you to follow along. Um, um, verses 33 to 36, there's not many of them, uh, but I think it's really important for your eyeballs to see what your ears hear. Um, and so that's the most important part of the sermon to me, is that when we read the Word, because it's really coming directly from the Lord. Uh, and if you don't have one at, at uh, home, uh, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a gift with you. Okay, So if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father, we come to you uh, and to your word. And God, we believe that it's, it's from you. God, you tell us that all scripture is God-breathed. And so we believe that when you inspired Paul to write this down, first to a church in Rome, and then you preserved it and placed it within the, the, the Bible. And you kept it all of these hundreds of years. And that we get to read it now. God, we believe that it's just as authoritative today as it was when it was first written and read at the church in Rome. And so we pray that you would open up our eyes to be able to see amazing things in your word this morning. We pray, God, that you would give us a full heart, an open heart. God, I pray that you would help us to set aside the burdens and the pressures, um, those question marks in every one of our lives, that you would help us, Lord, to set those aside even for a moment, Lord, to be able to see how this passage speaks to those question marks in our life. And so uh, we ask that you would uh, fulfill your promise uh, to us, to be our teacher and our guide. Would you speak through weakness in myself and bring glory to the name of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we were, uh, we, uh, our family was on vacation. We uh, flew to Texas. We flew to Odessa, Texas. Now, if you've ever been to Odessa, um, you know that, uh, that we did not fly into the most beautiful city in the world. Uh, it's uh, really sort of um, in the middle of nowhere, and then uh, to get to where my brother lives, which is in Alpine, Texas, you drive two and a half hours further away from from somewhere. Okay, it's 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 really um, a long way away. Um, in fact, you drive far enough away that it becomes beautiful again because you move into these amazing mountains. And uh, one day, uh, while while there, my brother has six sons. And, uh, and we, of course, have three, and, and so we, have, uh, we, we, we needed a plan every day of, of, of what we were going to do, and there's a lot of land out there where, 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 where he's at, and so we decided to climb a little mountain. No, it's not an enormous mountain, but we had kids with us, and so we're, we're climbing, and we see the beauty all around us, and for most of this mountain, um, it's, it's, um, it's sort of just a steady incline. It's not that hard. Um, it was... Uh, full of you know rocks and and, and um, uh, cactuses and all, all 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 sorts of things like that and we were very conscious of snakes because the tall grass and all that kind of stuff and we're th- just thinking okay you know this is this is going well but at the very end there's about I don't know thirty forty fifty yards um, or maybe feet I'm not sure exactly where it really gets very very steep and it's just rock uh, and it's and it's and it's really really steep rock and. 
And our group of however many broke up into smaller groups for whatever reason, and um, not intentionally. And so I found myself um, uh, with with a few kids and Tabitha and sister-in-law and uh, my dad, and we're trying to get to the top of this thing. And what was interesting is during that time, I forgot all about the beauty around me. Uh, it was it was just about finding the very best way, the safest way to get us and kids and 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 my uh, and my dad uh, up this mountain, which in some places was 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 dangerous, to be honest with you. But what's interesting is once we got the last person up and we're standing up on top, and we looked out, all of a sudden, um, all the beauty of what was already around me um, came back to my eyes. For that moment where we were really just trudging and climbing and moving one, one foot at a time and one step at a time and one crevice at a time, and all of that became really insignificant, so much so that I wasn't amazed by any of it because I wasn't looking at it. But once we got to the top, then all of a sudden there was a collective, wow, look at this. It's a beautiful thing. This passage is Paul's re-recognition that this thing is beautiful. That the gospel is beautiful. Here at the end of Romans chapter 11, right before he gets into 12, where he really switches gears and he talks about, now how do we live out the gospel? Paul's sort of like that mountain climber who's just scaled Everest and he gets to the top and he looks out and he's like, wow, look what I get to see. After crossing all of these crevices, right, from chapters 1 through 5 of of our dark sinfulness. And, and then after crossing and moving near all the smaller peaks of, of God's amazing plan of salvation in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And then after showing us some of those treacherous cliffs that, that sort of boggle our mind of God's sovereignty in salvation in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He finally gets to the end here. He gets to the top of the mountain. I think he raises his head. And he literally erupts in personal worship. And this is what he says. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So in the time that we have this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you three truths in this passage. And then hopefully for each one of those, there'll be a practical application for us to take and think about how do we go about living this out in our own life. So the first truth I want you to see is this, is the depths of God and his resources are beyond measure. Literally, the depths of who God is, but also the resources, the attributes of God. It's, it's so hard to pick words when you're trying to describe supernatural things because words in human language, they buckle under the pressure of what they're being asked to communicate and to describe. So when I sat there and I thought, okay, is it God's resources? Well, it's sort of his attributes, but it's also his resources, but it's also just the person of God himself. It's all of who God is, all of his resources. They're literally beyond measure. 
And sometimes words, they simply evade ourselves, our own hearts, our minds, when we're overwhelmed. And this seems to what has happened to Paul. You see, peering over this deep ravine of God's riches and his wisdom and his knowledge, the only thing that he can muster up is an oh. Like you notice that he's not saying anything about the depth of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. He's just recognizing that they're there. It's like standing on top of a mountain and saying, you know what, I see it all. There's no words, and so I'm just going to say, wow. Oh. This happened to us on our, on our trip. We actually uh, left uh, the camp where we were at with my brother, and we went up into New Mexico, and uh, we went to a place called White Sands National Park. Uh, White Sands is, uh, you talk about in the middle of nowhere. It's, I mean, it's literally in the middle of nowhere. And there's 185 square miles of white sand. It's beautiful and it's blown. And so it sort of forms these little hills and little uh, small mountains of, of sand. And, and just an incredible place. And so we went out there and uh, we went out there about three. It was about 105 degrees and we're playing in the sand sort of. And, and we're all tired and hot. And so we get back in the car and we, we think... Let's go back at sunset. And so we did. We went back out there, and it was just an absolutely amazing thing because you can look everywhere around. And I have a little picture that I want to show you. We, 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 we get there, and this is Seth, right? And uh, this picture, you know, as most pictures of creation do, they just don't tell the whole story because literally it was an amazing thing. There was that kind of color, but it was all the way around us. The sunset was in front of us, obviously, but you could see the orange and the blues all the way behind us. It was an amazing thing. And we sat there, and, and for our entire family, it was one of the highlights of the whole trip was that sunset, that night, playing in the sand and being without words of saying, how can you describe this? And this is what Paul is doing. Paul has just sought to describe the gospel that has saved each one of us who've trusted in Jesus. And he is absolutely beside himself and he can't find words to explain what he knows of the riches and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. So he just says, oh, the riches. Well, how rich is God? You can't really quantify it, which is why he says that it's immeasurable or untraceable. You think about what God has said in his own word, though. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 says, To the Lord belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. And so what we're told in the scriptures is that God owns everything and can make more of anything he pleases because he can create out of nothing. See, you and I, we create also. We do. We take things that are and then we build things that weren't until we built them. And so we can build a swing set or, or a casserole or... or, or I, I, I didn't really think this part through. And so, but we build things, right? But eventually what happens is we stop building when we run out of resources. We get to the place where we say, you know, we ran out of eggs or we ran out of wood or we ran out of time or we ran out of whatever. And what this is saying is God never runs out because the coolest thing about God is he doesn't have to like have something to make something. The Bible says he created everything that you see with your eyes and can't see with your eyes out of what was nothing. Now, that's pretty amazing. You need something to create something small. He needs nothing to create anything he wants and pleases him. 
So you talk about the riches of God. He can say, you know what? I'll just take a bunch of nothing and I'll make whatever I want with it. Now that's, that's being loaded, right? He, that is rich. And he can't describe it. And so he just says, oh, oh, the riches of God. He goes on and he says, knowledge and wisdom. Now, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? I sort of think about it like this. Knowledge is the awareness of facts. Wisdom is the knowledge or the awareness of how to apply those facts for good ends and good goals. And so you can be really, really smart and not be very, very wise. You can know a lot of stuff and not know how to apply that knowledge to anything of of value. And you're just smart. But the Bible says God's not only rich in knowledge, but he's also rich in wisdom. So let's talk about his knowledge. Isaiah 46 verse 10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. What this means is that God knew tomorrow yesterday. How's that for knowledge? He knows your next week. You say, well, what if I make a decision that he's not counting on? You can't. He knows. He, it says that he makes known the end from the beginning. Psalm 147 verse 5 says his understanding is beyond measure. Literally, God looks and he knows every creature, every person, every star, every molecule, every atom, every proton, neutron, electron. He knows every galaxy. He knows you. He knows your emotions, your desires, inclinations of every single person on the face of the earth at all times. And what's amazing is that God knows the eternal chain of effects that flow from every event that's ever happened on the earth. So you say, well, I may decide this. Okay, decide that. Well, he knew that. And he also knew every effect that that decision would have eternally. And he knows that for every single person who's ever made a decision at any point in their life. He is perfect in knowledge, literally beyond measure. It's untraceable. It's unsearchable. But he also says he's infinitely wise Oh, the depth of his wisdom, meaning that God is able to make use of all of this knowledge to bring about his purposes, that they would pass, that God literally would take his knowledge and create a people for his own glory out of people who were once sinful for their own glory. And so he looks and he just says, oh, the depth. Now, you and I, we live on an earth and there's deep places on the earth. The deepest places on place on the earth is actually a place in the Mariana Trench. It's called Challenger Deep. Right? I want to show you a little picture. Of course, we didn't take a real picture of it because no one can get down there and actually take pictures like this. It's so dark. But let me just give you just a little scope of how deep is Challenger Deep. This is obviously in the sea. It drops down exactly 11,035 meters Now, what this means is if you could cut Mount Everest, the tallest place going up at its base, invert it and drop it into this trench that points at the bottom, 
is that Mount Everest would be completely submerged by water and there would be a mile and a quarter of water above Everest. So it's a deep place, isn't it? We go, well, that's deep. That, oh, the depth. But you know what? You can measure that. We did. It's 11,035 meters. Not 36, 35. We know how deep it is. And this is what makes God even so much more amazing than deep places on the earth. Because the next verse says, How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Literally, you can't even trace. You can't measure. You can't contemplate the depth of his riches or his knowledge or his wisdom. And the very fact that he chose these three doesn't mean that his attributes of justice or righteousness or love or holiness or any less. He just picked three. This is who God is. He's literally infinite in every single way. But just because we cannot search these depths does not mean they don't exist. Most people on this earth that insist that God is a delusion because they cannot see him or understand him are like children who call their parents make-believe while they eat the food purchased and prepared by their mom and dad. Just because you can't explain it and search it out at the depths of who God is and all of his resources doesn't mean that it's not there. Furthermore, just because we cannot know these depths fully doesn't mean that we can't know these depths truly. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit, through the, through the Word of God, literally speaks into our heart so that we can know something of God and that we can know something of a different kind of wisdom. It's not of the wisdom of this world. It's the wisdom of God. But isn't it true that no matter how deeply We know God and how many Bible studies we attend and how many books the Bible that we know and maybe even memorize. We must all confess with David these words. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's simply too high and I cannot attain it. And you say, well, what's the application point on a verse that has nothing to do with us? (laughs) I thought about that same thing. And so here's the application point for number one. Let's remember that our lives are not the point of life. I want you to think about this for a second. You are not the point of this afternoon. So there's no reason to live like it. You see, none of verse 33 can be said of you or me. But it's true of God. And even though it's not true of us and it is true of God, isn't it amazing how often and how much of our life is spent living like the guy who's staring in amazement at the depth of his belly button while he's standing at the precipice of the Grand Canyon? Look how deep it is. I think what he's saying is open up your eyes, lift your gaze. It's not about you. None of this It's about us. You say, well, it really is about me. No, your business, it's not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your kids, they're not about you. He owns everything. It's all for him. All of it. You see, the depth of our riches, the depth of 
our knowledge and wisdom are kind of like the dimple of a golf ball. It's very searchable. It's very traceable. You can know exactly how much money that I have, and it won't take you very long to figure that out. You can know exactly what I know and what I don't know. It bears witness all the time. They're all searchable. But with him, he's unsearchable. So let's give our lives to make much of him. Let's urge our kids to make much of him. The greatest parenting advice our culture has right now and the greatest fear that our culture has for kids as they grow up is that they think lowly of themselves. The greatest failure would be that they think lowly of the one who's really high and that they think high of the one that's really low. It's about him. See, when making decisions this week, let's consult the one who is rich in wisdom. When spending money this week, let's consult the one who owns what we're about to spend. We live in his world. And you and I are going to stand before his throne. So no matter how old or young you are, I urge you to come to grips really, really quickly with the fact that your life on earth is simply going to be too brief to make your life the point of your life. You exist for him. For his glory. The second thing I want you to see which is really convicting. I'll just tell you right now, okay? A little convicting. Number two is that the depths of God and his resources are beyond our judgment. They're beyond our judgment. What he does is in verse 34 and 35, Paul borrows ideas and even some quotes from three different Old Testament places to ask three questions that all have the exact same answer. So he says, let me ask, who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the answer to that? No one. Who's ever been his counselor? No one. Who's ever given him something that now God's in debt to that person? No one. Now, why does he go there? I think it's for these reasons. He starts and he says, who is... Not starts, he actually finishes. Let's start with the last question first. Okay, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer, of course, is no one. And then you ask why, and he says in verse 36, well, this is why, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. And in other words, we cannot put God in our debt because everything that we give him is already his. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What Paul's saying here is this, is the only thing that you have in your entire life by which you literally have a right to boast in is what you had in your hands when you came out of the womb. He says everything, your gifts, your abilities, your time, your thoughts, everything is on loan from God. Then he says, now, who has known the mind of the Lord or who's ever been his counselor? And of course, the answer is, well, nobody has. See, it's interesting that you and I can know something of God's mind because he gave us the Bible. But no one in this room can know God's mind enough to counsel him. 
But sadly, counsel is the one thing that we presume most to give to God. Have you ever noticed how the things that are fitting are really hard for us to give God and the things that are, that are definitely not fitting are the things that we just are very, very natural and talented to give to God? It's very hard for us to give God love, hope, faith, trust. It's very easy for us to give God advice. But he's the one who knows all things. We say things all the time like, God, you're running the world all wrong here. You should do it like this. And some people would even go further and say, if you don't do it like this, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. That's kind of like a diabetic child eating cake saying to his doctor, if you give me one more insulin shot, I'm never coming back. We, on this earth, we, we tend to forget that he's the one that's perfect in knowledge and wisdom. And we are not. You see, the one thing that Paul explicitly says that we cannot give and dare not give is the one thing that we most often give. Now, what's really interesting is to know where these three questions came from in the Old Testament. All of them are found in a book called Job. Now, some of you don't know anything about Job, right? Job's an amazing book. It's found in one book right in front of Psalms. And let me give you just a little snapshot of the book of Job, okay? Because it's all about questioning God. That's not necessarily the theme, but it's full of it, okay? It's full of people questioning God. So what happens is this really, really godly guy, and all of a sudden he goes through a series of events where tremendous difficulty, pain, and loss come to him through the hands of of God. Not necessarily by the hands, but through the hands. And he really goes through a tremendous pain. So much so that he's got some buddies, and his buddies come and he said, You know what? We should go and console our buddy, Joe. And they're all theologians, right? They've all recently graduated seminary, and so they're loaded for bear, and they come to Job and they see that, man, look, look at this guy who's beat down. What did he do wrong? God doesn't allow bad stuff to happen to good people. And there's been a lot of stuff that's bad that's happened to Job, so he must not be a good person. And so one by one, they'd start taking their turns in a series of three different conversations with each one of them, where they're accusing him of doing something wrong. And Job's like, literally, I, seriously, you look at my life. Look, I'm not, like, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm a sinner, but I don't have anything out there that's like this, this, this huge elephant that I'm just choosing not to talk about or to confess his sin or repent of. I, I, I don't know. I didn't do anything. So the next guy comes up and he goes, all right, look, he wasn't very successful. Let me try to convince you that this all happened because of sin. Well, eventually Job starts to get so defensive that he even starts to go offensive towards God. And we get to a place in the book of Job, and it's in Job chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. And this is what he says. Job eventually says these words, Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to his seat, his throne, 
and I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Now, what's he saying there? I would become the DA and he would become the defendant. I would lay out my case before him and talk about how he's done me wrong. And so, um, so this goes on for a while and he gets more resistant to his friends and eventually God shows up. Now, when God shows up in an environment like Job, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing what happens. Because over four chapters, God comes and he asks Job 77 questions. And those 77 questions can be boiled down into three categories. Job, do you comprehend my creation? Do you care for my creation? And do you control my creation? Because you think and you're speaking like you know a whole lot. But do you know these things? It's it's amazing how he starts. For some reason, I always laugh when I read this because it's so intimidating. That I, for some reason, that's the response to come out. But Job chapter 38, this is what God says. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. He goes, all right, you want to question me? Let's talk. And this is what he says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Now, can you imagine the God of the universe? You're sitting down like you are right now. And he goes, stand up. Dress for action like a man. You know what that means? Better suit up because we're about to go at it. Now, let me start asking you questions. And they're questions like this. Um, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, That's a hard one, God. All right, well, don't answer. Let me ask you another one. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. 77 questions later, God comes again to him. It's amazing. The Lord says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I laid my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And so you think, okay, God made his point. And God does this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind again and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you're going to make it known to me. And he goes again. You see, I believe that Paul, seeing the marvel of the gospel and then seeing his own inclination to question a God, who was made this available for him. And it makes him remember the story of Job where another man said, you know what, God, I I don't like the fact that you do it like this. And so he brings it in and then he puts an exclamation point with this. He goes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. You see, so often we're like the hamster in the cage gets up on his back legs, says, I'm going to revolt against my master when we know so little about what's happening outside of our cage. 
It's just not about us, guys. It's not. You see, everything that is and comes to be has its beginning in God and is carried out for God and serves every purpose of God. Even evil, which is contrary to God and never springs from God, is included insofar as God permits and limits and regulates and governs all things and makes all things serve his purposes according to his wise counsel. So the application for point two is let's trust God's heart even when we cannot see his hand. There is not a single person I believe in this room that is without doubt regarding God's place of our life or pace in our life. I do not have the answers even to the trials in my own life, much less yours. There are so many things that I look at that I do not understand. And there are times that I think it's right for us as God's people. And there's a right way for us to come to God and say, God, I don't understand this. You can ask God a question without blaming him or accusing him. You can say, God, this is where I'm at. I don't get it. I, but I know you're sovereign. And I'm choosing to trust I cannot see your hand, but I know that your hand is connected to your heart, and I know what your heart is like. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The fourth song that we just sang, right? His blood speaks a better word. What, what, you say, what, what is it even talking about? What it's talking about is this, is that if you ever doubt the kindness of God's hand, then you have to trace his hand back to his heart. And the greatest expression of the love of God in his heart is that he would kill his son who was perfect, perfect, righteous for you and for me to pay the penalty of our sin, to be buried in a grave out of rock that he created. And to rise from the dead to extend to us an invitation that if we would believe in Jesus, he would take away all of our sin. That he would forgive us. He would give us his righteousness and even adopt us into his family. This is what God has made available. You see, pain and evil, they are so real. But we must guard our heart because it is our nature to assume the worst in a void of information. We do this with our spouse. We do this with our friends. We do this with our leaders. We do this with our president. We do this with, with, with politicians. We do this with the mayor. We do this with the principal. We do this with our pastor. We do this with our spouse. And we do this with God. When we don't know everything, something about our heart that assumes the worst and not the best And this is why it's so critically important at those points of tension in our life for us to call to attention what we know about their heart. When I'm frustrated with my wife, Tabitha, both times it's happened, right? (laughs) Like the most important thing to do is to remember. You know, I'm frustrated right now, but I know that she did not make a vow and commit her life to walk with me through this earth with ill intent. And so what's happening right now 
I don't understand, but I need to assume the best of my wife. What Paul is saying here is this, is that for us as we walk through the earth and we recognize that there is one that is perfect and limitless in wisdom and knowledge and authority and power and riches and bad things happen on the earth, is that we need to trace his hand all the way back to his heart that's anchored on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's for you. You can trust him. You really can. You may not be able to explain everything that's going on, but even in a lack of explanation, you can trust the heart of your creator. The last thing that you see here is the very end. He talks about the glory forever. Is the depths of God and his resources are poured out for his glory. You see, Providence, friends, the story of the Bible and human history is ultimately the story about the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, you talk about the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge. There's this amazing little verse. It's Colossians chapter 2, verse 30. You say, well, where, is, where are all these things personified? Where, where is the source of all this wisdom and knowledge? And notice what he says. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the source of wisdom and knowledge. You see, the Bible tells us that every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth is going to spend eternity acknowledging the sovereignty and authority of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Many will bow and confess in hell because they refuse to trust Christ on the earth but they will still bow and they will still confess. But you don't have to do that. I should say, you don't have to be there to do that. You have an opportunity, if you've never trusted Christ, even this morning, to say, God, what I recognize is this, is that these attributes, when I look at my own life, my riches, wisdom, and knowledge, is they're not that deep. But I see that in Christ they are. See, too, when, when, when we talk about accepting Christ into our life, it's really to where we direct our heart to God. And we literally bend the knee of our heart and we say, God, this is what I believe and this is what I know. I believe that I'm a sinner. There's evidence all around me that I make mistakes and have rebelled against your word. I've made terrible decisions and it's had effect upon my life and other people. I'm a sinner, but I believe that you love me. And you sent your son Jesus from heaven to earth and he lived a righteous life. And yet he still went to the cross to die for me, for my sin. And he was buried in a grave and I believe that he rose from the dead. And I confess him as the Lord of my life. And the Bible says that if you pray that out of the sincerity of your heart, we looked in Romans chapter 10 last week that he will save you. I guess two weeks ago, he will save you. He will forgive you of your sin. In fact, there's even a class that's going to start next week. If you're here and you're like, that's that's great and all, but I have some questions. It's called Starting Point. It's going to be at this very hour at 11 o'clock in room 210 where you can come and just ask questions about Christianity. What is the gospel? What did Jesus really do? You can come and learn more about that next week. But for us at Providence, the application here is this, is let's give our days to pursuing the glory of Christ. Let's give our days to pursuing the glory of Christ. 
Just this morning, I was reading a little story, John chapter 3, about John the Baptist. And it really struck me. Here's John. He's becoming more and more popular. A lot of people coming. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts his ministry. And more and more people are leaving John's crowd. And they're moving over to Jesus' crowd. So some people come up to John. And they say, John, does this bother you? Man, they're all going over. Because, I mean, like, that's where the party's at now. It's not really over here. And you know what John says? He says, you know what? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it comes from the hand of God. And then he uses this illustration about the groomsmen and the bridegroom. He says, you know, the fact is, is that, is that when the bridegroom comes out the doors and starts speaking, no one cares about his presence and no one enjoys his voice more than the groomsmen. And he says, I'm the groomsman. How unfitting would it be at a groom's wedding for a groomsman to try to make it look like it's all about him? Hey, actually, I'm the star over here. Look at this, look at this talks. I'm looking, you know, and kind of, you know, got my head in the pictures and everything. You think, gosh, that would be so unfitting for a groomsman to do that. And this is what John is saying. And then eventually he gets to this conclusion. He says, Jesus must become more and I must become less. And this is the call for every single believer. We're all glory thieves at heart. We all love to stand in the sight line between God and his people so that people think highly of us and much of us the call of the Christian life, when he says here, to him be glory forever, to him be glory forever, is a life that ducks. I'm going to do my best at work, and when you ask, I'm going to tell you it's all about Jesus. I'm not going to look to glorify myself. I'm not going to magnify myself in your impression. I want you to think highly of him, because the depths of wisdom and knowledge are all in him. And so, Providence, you and I, let's, let's walk this week. Let's live today as if everything we know is about Him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do love you. Thank you for the kindness that you pour out to us. And Jesus, we acknowledge that all of these depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge, they are all reside in you. And we worship you and we praise you. We acknowledge you. God, you even tell us that our minds cannot wrap themselves around the immensity of who you are. And yet, your word tells us that we can know you truly. And so we thank you that these things are true. We thank you that as we look into the depths, we can't see the bottom, but there is a bottom. That you are there. And so we give you all praise and all glory. Lord, it's all to you. We love you. And even, Lord, now as we sing and as we give an offering, what you've given to us, we confess, as we've read here, Lord, that everything we're about to give you is already yours. So it's with joy that we give it and place it in your hand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.